Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, September 23rd, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. The Lord gives Ezekiel another vision. He shows his prophet four great abominations that are happening in the temple in Jerusalem. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andy Wright. Pastor Wright serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. Pastor Wright, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. It's great to be back here again. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We're starting a bit of a new section here in Ezekiel. There's a transition at the beginning of this text. What, what have we read so far? What do we need to recall about the prophet and his ministry thus far that helps us into chapter 8? Yeah, some things that kind of where Ezekiel chapter 8 picks up, you kind of think about in the previous chapters of especially chapter 6 and 7, we have those condemnation of God against the people um, for, you know, some of the things that are going on. But then it kind of kind of points us to this promise of salvation for the remnant. You know, that's a big theme, not only in Ezekiel, but also in the Old Testament, this idea of the remnant, that there's always going to be those faithful people that God not only preserves, but promises redemption to. And uh, so it's from that then that we start to get into then this next section in Ezekiel, looking at Ezekiel, especially chapters 8 to 11 are, are often um, grouped together. And um, so that's kind of our context as we pick up on this and get into this kind of this vision now that, that Ezekiel comes into. In terms of chapters 8 through 11 then, and we're just getting the first part of it, what is it that holds it together? How do those chapters work together as a part of this part of Ezekiel? Yeah, we, we see this, um, there's almost kind of, um, Dr. Horace Hummel in his commentary, I, I like how he words it this way. He talks about there's the kind of, this is the second part of an internal outline um, that centers on the incarnational form form of Yahweh. And so that kind of, kind of holds everything together in this section of chapters 8 to 11. So we have these appearances of the glory of, of God, the, the, the form of man we saw in chapter 1. And then we have glory forsaking forsaking the hopelessly corrupt temple in Jerusalem and going into exile in chapters 8 to 11. So that's kind of what we see, the, the glory, and how this fits into this kind of this internal outline in this section. And then later then he'll pick up then with that glory in chapter 43 with the kind of the eschatological temple that will then talk about the new Israel and the church triumphant. So this glory of forsaking the temple and going into exile here in chapters 8 to 11, kind of how that, that works out. Um, and then there's also a, kind of a chiastic structure in this too that, that sees its kind of its, its middle point with the appearance of the divine glory that God ma- makes his appearance in, in the form of the, the pre-incarnate Christ in 8.4. And then it kind of also then a parallel in chapter 11, 22 to 23. So you kind of things leading up to that stemming from that and leading up to that again. So that uh, that glory really is a big part of this 8 to 11. 
Ezekiel says that this is a part of a vision. In, in verse 3, he's, he says that he is brought in visions of God to Jerusalem. How does the fact that we're looking at a vision here influence the way that we read this text in terms of chronology and, and how we interpret? That's a good question. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that we it's always tempting for us to want to try to say, okay, so this happens here, then, then this must happen next, and, and those kind of things like that. But often, like you think about even like the book of Revelation, for instance, which is also this kind of this genre of apocalyptic literature or here in the Old Testament, this kind of prophetic and apocalyptic literature as well, that it's not always um, a chronology, you know, that is, you know, A to B to C, you know, in terms of time frame when this happens, there's there's some of this stuff. We It's hard to discern, OK, is this happening before this or after this? Also to this locationness when we get into the abominations, where in the temple is this taking place? Is he seeing this now? Is he seeing this later? It's just kind of all meshed together. It's more thematic, we kind of see, is how it's kind of grouped. Um, and that's where you see, I think, a, a good kind of parallel is kind of when you think about the book of Revelation, how he kind of circles back to things and comes back to it. And you see that kind of those, you know, that um, that progression and then, you know, also then those those themes that kind of reappearing that's not always in chronological order. Or even sometimes you get that out Think about Matthew's gospel as well, where you have things grouped according to the discourse, you know, the different sections, be it the parables, the miracles. So it's not always, you know, in just specific chronology, you know, this happened here the next day and those kind of things like that. So we see that here in chapter eight and also in this section of chapters eight to 11. Let's go ahead and read the text then. We're in Ezekiel chapter eight, beginning at verse one. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Let's pause there. That really introduces the vision as a whole before we get into what he's seeing in verses 5 through the rest of the chapter. So some of the outward entailments are mentioned in that very first verse, Pastor Wright. We get a, a date formula, which now this is the second time that we've gotten this in the book of Ezekiel. It started with a date formula based on when King Jehoiachin went into exile. So we're, we're basing that here again. What what do we find out about the date, kind of the, the entailments of Ezekiel's ministry at this point in chapter 8? Kind of referring back to that uh, that commentary by Dr. Hummel, because this is one of those things that I'm always terrible with geography and terrible with sometimes with dates with things. <laughs> so with that being said, I defer to somebody who is far wiser than me on some of these kind of dating with things. And and there is a little bit of a controversy in verse one here of chapter eight, like of how this dating works. Um, Ezekiel, you specifically kind of have some some people that depending on whether or not you look at the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, or the Septuagint, which is the Greek text, there are some variants on how kind of certain words that are used in dating. But I mean, so that kind of gets into the kind of nitty gritty of some textual stuff. 
But kind of um, one of the things that then we see, though, kind of looking at this date, if we were to kind of put it in terms of like our calendar, we would date this around. And this is from Dr. Hummel. He says September 18th, 592 BC. So to me, that's impressive that you can get that exact date. You know, it's like. Yeah, I almost wanted that. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. The weather was, you know, those kind of things. But that's where he dates this about kind of doing that kind of back, uh, going backlogging with research and then kind of what you said to, you know, dating with the exile of the, the king and stuff like that. So that's where kind of, and for our frame of mind, our reference point kind of around September 18th of 592 BC mm. is where um, we get this. And so it's after then his first vision too. Um, and some things that kind of jump out too with the context of that vision of we, we see that after his first vision that now Ezekiel seems to be regarded as a prophet among the people, uh, because, you know, we have this, um, the elders of Judah sitting before him, you know, so they're, they are, they're listening to him for something who these elders were. We don't know that could be some type of. Um, leaders in the self-government of the exiles, you'll see that arise often. You know, we we always want structure and, and order in things. And even like uh, one of the things when I was reading this and kind of thinking about just kind of some of those those exilic, like governmental things, you, um, I, I like military history. And you think about like prisoners of war, for instance, during World War II, they would have their own kind of structure within the camps, you know, where they would have even elected leaders or sometimes even courts they'd set up, you know, all those kind of things like that. So these these elders are, I mean, that's a leadership term in the Old Testament. They're before him. And I think another thing that's worth noting, too, is he sat in his house when this happens. He's sitting in his house. Now, isn't that odd, too, you know, that he's sitting in, in a house? You know, we think of exile, maybe, at least in my mind, you know, the Assyrian exile was different than the Babylonian exile, to be sure. But uh, and so the Babylonians were not necessarily as harsh on certain things as the Assyrians. But but Ezekiel apparently has a house, right, that he's in some place that he calls his home. And then this is where this vision occurs. Yeah, I mean, I, I said I've, I've said earlier in the book of Ezekiel that, that Ezekiel is he's like the pastor of a house church because his his ministry does primarily, at least in this stage, take place in the house. Back in, in chapter 3, the Lord, you know, put Ezekiel there and said, you're going to stay here. You're not going to go out among the people. And we've seen him do these, you know, uh, action prophecies, as Dr. Hummel calls them, there in his yep. house. And so, as you said, he's apparently become known as a prophet through this preaching, through these action prophecies that have happened in his house. That's the scene where this is taking place. And it's it's here in his house, then, that the vision occurs. So it, that begins in verse 2. What do we find out in terms of, and, and again, these details maybe are hard to discern precisely what's going on, but what are we told about how this vision comes and how Ezekiel receives it? Ezekiel records for us here that the hand of the Lord of God fell upon him, at kind of how chapter 1 ends, and then I looked and behold. Um, so this is kind of a unique phrase, this idea of the hand of the Lord God or Yahweh fell upon me. Now we think like back in 322, for instance, the hand of Yahweh was upon me, but here there's this more dramatic, it fell upon him. Mm. Kind of this more, almost kind of not necessarily violent, but more just vivid, dramatic idea. And he's looking and now behold, he sees this appearance. 
So some people then, one of the things that we don't know for sure, but we, this is just kind of speculating from things that we glean from the text, especially then kind of jumping ahead to chapter 11, you know, at the end of this section in, in verses 24 to 25, uh, we get this kind of this impression that this is just more of a kind of a spiritual um, trance or spiritual state that he's in, as opposed to like in chapter three, when he's physically translated from one one location to another, kind of up a, almost like, I don't know, for you know, to borrow a sci-fi term, teleported, you know, from one place to another. That here, then we we get more of this, you know, the, kind of this spiritual thing. So he's physically in his house, but yet he he is uh, in this has this this vision that we we pick up in here, and then right away, then too, we see this this form had the appearance of a man. So there's this. So here he is in the house. The God's hand falls upon him. Boom. Appearance of a man. Right. And then now what does this look like? And then that's what we see. So it's it's really you know, we kind of have to just kind of let the text stand as it is. But just kind of this this idea that this picture that is built before us by Ezekiel of it's it's just kind of a quite quite pronounced, you know, that we have here. Hmm. This figure of the the man that that comes up in verse two, that's the same thing that he saw back in chapter one, right? Yeah, definitely. At the end of that inaugural vision, you know, that he has. And, and that's no coincidence, you know, that here then that, uh, you know, when we have this idea in the Old Testament of like sometimes the angel of God, right? There's always the question, well, who is this? Is this an angel? Is this? Um, God himself, well, here he doesn't use that term, even angel, but he talks about the form of the appearance of a man um, that had uh, appeared to be, waist was fire above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Um, and uh, and then, and so the, these kind of these symbols and kind of this idea with, especially with the brightness and the light, and then um, how he then will address uh or, or the kind of the posture of Ezekiel towards him and the address here that we it's I think it's fair for us to to say that this is you know the pre-incarnate Christ just as he saw back in at the end of chapter one um also too we kind of get some Daniel imagery that kind of pops up here too especially like one like a son of man and then you know with light and brightness you know that then will carry on into I think of even the New Testament when we have those kind of those um theophanies, revealings of Jesus, you know, like transfiguration and those kind of things that when he talks about himself as the son of man. So he's seeing God here, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And so God is going to give him this vision. And and the way that it's described, you know, he he puts out the form of a hand, takes me by a lock of my head, which I, I find intriguing because earlier Ezekiel shaved his, his head in order to show the mourning over the city of Jerusalem. So apparently his hair's grown back and he, he didn't keep it shaved. He's, he's been grabbed by a lock of his head. And then the spirit lifts him up. I mean, it's, it's quite something, you know, I think that you don't necessarily, well, I think you see within this text evidence of the Holy Trinity in in the workings here of, of how this various this vision is described. You've got the the form of the man, you've got the Lord, you've got the Spirit, and although perhaps it's not as uh, what's the word systematic as you might read, say in Matthew twenty eight, the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, you see the Trinity here in this text. I think. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good point. Especially too, just the the agency of of who's doing the action in this kind of gives us as well. And oftentimes in in the Old Testament, when we see the um, 
the the Trinity, we see that this unity, but also kind of, you know, when we talk about like the the internal and external kind of um, economy of the Trinity, that we see these actions that are one action between one person, but yet they're each one of us doing something else with this. So like, for instance, the word for spirit here is the word ruach, what we, we think of like, you know, that idea of the spirit, which he'll bring up later with the, you know, breathing into in the Valley of the Dry Bones, but but even like in creation, right, the spirit of God hovering over the water, the word of God there, those kind of things that it's one God, but we, we have this duality to, um, you know, in persons, but yet one, one essence, you know, with that, that, so it, it's, it's a little messy, I guess, is kind of, you know, but yet we still see God and the, the Trinity as one God still kind of working in all of this. Now, as Ezekiel has this vision, so he's he's there in body in Babylon, but is being transported in spirit to see what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem in this vision. The, the immediate thing that comes into his view is this juxtaposition on the one hand between this image of jealousy that's there in the temple and then the glory of the God of Israel that's also there. And that, that's going to kind of inform then what he's going to see in the rest of the text. What, what is happening in this opening part of the vision? How does that set the stage for what we're going to, to read in the rest of the chapter? I think you hit it pretty well when you said that this juxtaposition of the statue of jealousy and the God of glory. And that's going to be something he really comes back to even then with the, the fourth abomination that kind of one of the things that we really see pronounced here from the get-go in this vision is that um, God is being um, placed alongside these idols. And, you know, when, when we think about jealousy and the jealousy of God, um, that he, you know, we, we are to have no other gods. And here then, here's the God of Israel, the glory of God incarnate, alongside you know these these different images of, of people worshiping false gods i was talking with my wife about this this morning some too just about you know here's ezekiel and as crazy as all this stuff is for us to kind of wrap our minds around to you know a vision and all these different kinds of things like that yet how relevant is this to this day that we see this idea of, of wanting to have kind of this pluralism or syncretism of oh it's okay you have your gods i have my gods we'll just exist alongside one another Right. I mean, or even think about the early church or the New Testament times. One of the things, what, what did the Romans get upset with the Christians about? Not that they were worshiping Christ. They didn't care less about, or they could have cared less about that, but it's that they only worshiped Christ. And it said there's only this. So Ezekiel is going to see that firsthand vividly that you have this, here's the temple that God has established. Here's the glory of God dwelling in this place. And then alongside that, next to him, are these false gods. Mm. So, I, I mean, that's just, it's quite a scene, quite a scene there from the get-go. Sure. And and what's the way it's phrased here, and we're going to see this in the rest of the text as well, is there's this image of jealousy. What what might that be referring to? Yeah, it, um, he'll see it uh, uh, again in the, the first temple scene. Um, it, I think it's this idea that... Um, we're looking at this kind of this exclusivity of God and then this, this statue of jealousy we see as kind of this, the syncretism, I, I would say, I don't know. It's kind of a, a weird phrase that we see here in, in three, but um, uh, it provokes jealousy is what he says. We're the seat of image of jealousy, um, which provokes jealousy. Um, 
you know, jealousy by its very nature has, uh, you know, an exclusivity to it. Like it's, I have something, you have something, I want what you have, right? Or jealousy in terms of God's, from God's perspective, you know, that you have no other gods, that he alone is God, jealous in a righteous sense with that. So I don't know, it's it's one of those things. I, I, to be honest, I'm not real sure, you know, how this is phrased, um, but uh, kind of just, I think really, it, it's just to get us into that mindset of, kind of opposing the glory of God in Israel. So, I mean, and I think the picture as a whole of this vision, as we'll see, is going to be one of, and you brought this out very well already, that idol worship is happening right alongside and in the place where the Lord alone is to be worshipped. And and yes, the image of jealousy is maybe a strange way of, of phrasing it. it. And I think you, you've captured what's being entailed there, especially when you think of how the Lord calls himself a jealous God, that he would have no other gods alongside him. We're going to see later in Ezekiel some very vivid depictions of the idolatry of the people of Israel and Judah, both as adultery, you know, putting it in the context of a, of a marriage. And so I think, mean, you know, jealousy fits there well. In terms of, of the historical reality of, of what he might be seeing, and again, recognizing this is a vision, but what are, what are some of the historical realities within the people of Israel and Judah that could be behind this image of, of jealousy? What do we know from the rest of the Old Testament? Sure, yeah, and kind of picking back off of what you just said with jealousy there, too. Jealousy, too, it always evokes God's wrath as well. So you think about that, and kind of then leading into, like, then, with this statue as an idol violating, like think about like Deuteronomy 4, 16, um, where God, you know, has that prohibition. Um, some people have proposed like, what is this exactly? Like what God, you know, or false God or idol is here. Um, in second Chronicles 33, seven, there's an idol that's referred to that the, the evil King Manasseh erected in Jerusalem temple. Then we think about later Josiah probably removed it after the rediscovery of the, the Torah, and that would have been around 60, 622 BC. I had to look those dates up here. I told you, like at the beginning, I'm terrible with dates in the Old Testament, especially. Um, so, and then, so that would have been in 622 BC. And here we're we are dealing with you know 592 BC. So you know, not that long of a time frame has has gone forward now. So it could be a re- reemergence of that cult when we think back with Manasseh. Um, Second Kings 27 or excuse me, 21, seven, second Kings 21, seven is more specific than about Manasseh's idol. It's the card image of Asherah. Now Asherah was well known during Ezekiel's time as well. We have sign of some archeological evidence kind of just looking at, at Babylon and, and even some of these Mesopotamian areas. Um, and it was the highest goddess in the Canaanite pantheon. And it, she, and was the consort of El, the highest God. Um, Jeremiah 44 talks about Asherah may be the queen of heaven, worshipped by the Judean refugees who fled to Egypt with Johanan in Jeremiah 43 to 44. Um, she was in pagan mythology, and she was also the mother of 70 lesser gods, including Baal. Hmm. Um, there was a popular, she was popularly identified with Astarte, or Astarte, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one, as the goddess of fertility and worshipped alongside Baal. So there's numerous Old Testament Testament passages that condemn worshiping her, Asherah, where she's kind of this feminine principle alongside the masculine idol of Baal or cult pillars of stone. So there's kind of another thing along with the syncretism is that a lot of these 
um, false um, gods too. They always wanted to try to assert their idea of equality. You know, if you think of man and woman here, you know, alongside God, as opposed to God who, who reveals himself in, in Christ as man or, you know, which is people find offensive today, wanting to try to feminize God or those kind of things like that. Well, I mean, there's nothing new to want to right. try to, uh, you know, assert these kind of things upon God. No, we, we go with who God reveals himself to be. So then um, I, I think that I, I, I think that's a pretty plausible um, kind of explanation of who this is here, that we see this Asherah, that especially the prevalence during Ezekiel's time, of that kind of that false idol. Mm. Pastor Wright, as, as we prepare to look at the vision now, and we've we've said already there's going to be this series of abominations. We'll we'll pick up the text itself on the other side of the break. But before we do that, just help us in terms of the structure that we're going to see in in verses five through eighteen. How is this going to progress so that we're prepared to read it on the other side of the break? Yeah, we're going to see God give Ezekiel kind of a guided tour, you know, kind of showing him these things and then showing him these rights here along with this. And then he's going to kind of uh, ex- expose it. And then he's going to then, you know, ask him the question, uh, do you see son of man? You know, do you see? And then he'll say, you, you, you will see even greater abominations until we get to that final scene when we see this great abomination. So God will show him, ask him a question about what he sees, and then he will tell him, just wait, you'll see something even greater. Right, so a series of four abominations, each getting greater than the next, and we will pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 8 with Pastor Andy Wright. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 23rd. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Andy Wright. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. Pastor Wright, prior to the break, we set the stage for this vision, this series of four abominations that the Lord shows to his prophet Ezekiel, each one greater than the next. He's going to point it out to him. He's going to see it. He's going to say, do you see it? And he's going to say, you're going to see something greater until you get to that fourth one. So we're picking up the text in Ezekiel 8 at verse 5 to see this progression of four abominations. Then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this, was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in, 
and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there, engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men, with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. That's our the rest of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 8, verses 5 through 18. So, Pastor Wright, in terms of the, the escalation with each abomination getting greater than the next, up to that fourth one, how do we see that escalation as Ezekiel moves from place to place? Keeping in mind that is a vision, and so the, the whereabouts in the temple aren't always maybe as precise as we'd like them to be, but, but how do we still see that, Ezek- that progression, that escalation, as he moves from one abomination to the next? There's kind of this, um, you know, if you think about the, the image of the temple um, in the Old Testament, as you, there was a kind of degrees of holiness or kind of more amped up with things as you would go you know, farther back towards the Holy of Holies. So we kind of see that as he's kind of working his way back here. Um, and uh, there's also even different expressions used for the temple here in chapter 8. And in verse 6, they use the word sanctuary, which can often be used for the entire temple compound. Later, house of the house of Yahweh. Temple of Yahweh is used twice as in verse 16. Um, house of Yahweh kind of is seen as the incarnational dwelling of God on earth. Um, and then Temple of Yahweh, holy place or nave of the building. So each one of these then kind of this, this severity, it's it's kind of like it kind of gets closer and closer towards the Holy of Holies. Now, where, what exactly, what court or what gate, that's, that's something that it's hard for us to kind of discern specifically. There is, however, in this first scene, when he talks about the Statue of Jealousy, um, when we're listening to you read that, we kind of that northerly direction really stands out. And, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, the the plenary um, inspiration of scripture that, you know, every part, every word is inspired by God. And, it, and there's a, a reason why we have these directions here. Now, we don't always know why that could be the case, but there there's some speculation in this, in this first scene of abomination in verses five to six that this northerly direction could port towards the modern Jebel Acre or the classical, um, the in, in antiquity, Mount Cassius, which is on the Turkish-Syrian border, which is a little bit inland from the Mediterranean Sea. 
And the best way I've heard it described, and Dr. Hummel brings this up too, is it's the Mount Olympus of the Canaanites. So kind of directing it towards kind of then, you know, the the pantheon, the you know the the dwelling place of the gods of the Canaanites as well. But either way, there's this alienation that we see between um, Yahweh or the people's uh, between Yahweh and the people, or the people's alienation of themselves from the sanctuary. They're kind of trying to distance themselves from these things. And even when the 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 uh, when God asked Yah uh, God asked Ezekiel, excuse me, in verse six, "Son of man, do you see what you're doing?" There's even in some of the textual notes, some of the Hebrew here is kind of there's a little bit of a distance. He's looking off and observing this idea of these abominations in the house of Israel here, you know, this in this dwelling of God right here. Do you see what's going on here in God's dwelling and what they're oriented towards? Kind of so, you know, look at what the, what they are. Um, doing and uh you know see you know and look where this is happening do you see what's going on do you see where this is can you believe it so to speak right um uh and then they're committing here to drive me right god away from my sanctuary but you will see still greater abominations i mean just that language there is is very vivid Sure. I mean, it's if I can uh, the idea, or at least the picture that I've got in my mind with the idea of the the north there. It's as if they've they've opened the doors of the temple of the Lord to invite in these foreign gods, and, and particularly you know this image of jealousy that we talked about previously. That that they've just thrown the doors wide open, say, hey, come on in. Let's let's let these pagan gods come into the temple of the Lord, and the Lord's saying, that's alienating me. That's driving me far from from this place as if that's what's good for them, as if that's what they want. And and we'll see as this vision progresses beyond this chapter how that really does happen, the glory of the Lord. And I think you brought this out toward the beginning. The glory of the Lord is actually going to depart from the temple because of these abominations. Now, just that one by itself is is startling enough with this image of jealousy coming in from the north, being invited in by the people of Israel, but it, it grows greater. So the, the second abomination, and, and in terms of the length of description that we get of each one here in Ezekiel 8, this is the longest one, verses 7 through 12. And this is perhaps one of the, the harder ones to pinpoint what's going on. It's a little more cryptic in the way that it's described, I think. But we, can, we have some, some general ideas. What do we see in this second abomination as Ezekiel moves farther into the temple? This is one where we see kind of these images or things engraved images on the walls here. And um, so we're, we're not entirely known what he sees here or kind of where this exactly is. Um, if you look at like in First Kings chapter 6, it does talk about some side rooms or chambers around Solomon's temple. And it doesn't really say what those purposes are. But I mean, they could have been even practical purposes. You know, we think about like, you know, in a church, you have the you know, the different parts of uh, the nave and the, the sanctuary or the chancel and those at the narthex, you know, those kind of things like that. And the temple is kind of, or the church is often modeled after parts of the temple as well. And then in our church, we have like a sacristy and a vestry, these side rooms that, you know, they serve a purpose. You know, this is where the pastors get vested or this is where you know, the communion elements are prepared or this is where the, the pyramids are kept, you know, all those kind of things like that. So that that could be part of what he's seeing here. But it's not entirely known then. So where this exactly is, other than okay, this is he's in some place here. There's walls in here, and what does he see? Well, we're told that it's dark, but he sees what's going on, as we see in verse twelve. Um, so like verse twelve has that 
where it says in the dark, each in his room of pictures, right? And uh, so what are some of the possibilities? Well, these could be a conglomeration of all the cults flourishing in Jerusalem at the time, you know, different things. You think about the the engravings of First Kings 6, 29, 32, and 35, where they, there are some orthodox, you know, proper engravings. Um, Babylon's uh, Ishtar gate had images of men, lions, and serpent dragons. Um, and so there's a reference to the Babylonian god Tammuz in 814. So th those images were common at, at this um, prominent gate in Babylon. Um, you think about also ancient Egypt, that they had these beast-shaped deities, you know, you see like the, that have like uh, the, you know, the body of a man and like the head of like a, a dog or, you know, all those kind of things that we think of. Um, they were found in tomb niches, like kind of like uh, those little carved out places where you would put remains. Um, that was a common practice in the Middle East as well. So we don't know exactly what these images are, but he does tell us, though, what is known is the worship of these things um and the they're they're worshiping these images and the there are 70 men worshiping the images um 70 is is a often symbolic number of representing the whole nation of israel and then there's the special mention of this man here too but what they're doing um is uh in verse let's see what verse is that verse 10 um, engraved on the wall form of every creeping things, loathsome beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel. So it's just, you know, a boatload of stuff here that they're worshiping. So, you know, hearing you kind of um, talk about, too, that kind of with that northern direction and that first one of opening up and kind of facing north here, here's then another image of the syncretism of trying to put onto even the physical structure of God's temple, even if it's a side room of these other images and things of the pagan world around them you know um we talk about in a proper way of you know things in our worship uh we have the language of the people and and those say it was a good thing when the reformation you know we uh, you know people could have hymns and in their own language and and those kind of things and those are all well and good but there's always a warning to us to be careful when you when the culture around you becomes too entrenched in the church as well you know, and uh, I think that's what we see a, a lot of this too. So here, then this, uh, these different things, worshiping the cre creation rather than the creator. I mean, Romans 1 talks about that. We see that too today, you know, in terms of um, uh, God talks about that with homosexuality, you know, these unnatural things that God has not ordered for this. But uh, this guy then is singled out with this too, that he, we don't, there's, um, that name is mentioned, uh, that family name is mentioned in Jeremiah often, and they were a, a faithful family, but this guy here is very unfaithful. So yeah. he's kind of a, almost like, like a unfaithful black sheep of the family here too, what's going on when he sees this image. Um, but uh, he could have been known to be the idolatrous kind of guy of the family that he, he definitely recognizes him for who he is. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, after after reading the book of Jeremiah here on Sharper Iron not that long ago, that that stood out to me that that he's the son of of Shaphan. That that was a very faithful family historically in the Old Testament, and they helped Jeremiah out on several occasions. But yeah, apparently this this particular member is not one of the faithful and is is participating and and perhaps even leading this idolatrous worship. One one thought I, I had, and I'm not I'm not sure if this is if this is correct or not, or if, if there's much to be made of it, but just concerning the idea of the, you know, coming in from the north, that, that these 
false gods are being welcomed in from the north. Within And again, it's a vision, so I'm not sure how much to attach to this, but the fact that Ezekiel is looking through a hole in the wall and then has to dig in the wall to, to get in and take a, a peek here in the dark, it just it strikes me that, that there's a bit of a contrast there, that on the one hand, the false gods are being welcomed into the sanctuary of the Lord, but the faithful priest, because that that's who Ezekiel would have been had he been in Jerusalem, he would have been a priest— the faithful priest has to sneak in by by digging into a hole in the wall. It strikes me as as a and again, I'm not sure if, if that's making too much of a detail that's just kind of there as a part of the vision, but it it strikes me as, as one possibility. I don't know. You have any thoughts on that? I think there's maybe something to that, especially too when you think of kind of who these guys are, what's not said about them and what they're doing. Right. So you 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 bring up the important point that Ezekiel's a priest, unlike Jeremiah, for instance, who is a contemporary of Ezekiel. Um, so here then you have this priest having to try to get his way into the house of God, into the place where, where he rightly, by God's uh, command, you know, um, ha- has a obligation to be serving. But yet these guys are never mentioned to be priest, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're never mentioned that they have this place. And then they're doing things that God has given priests to do, um, you know, with like incense, for instance, as well, the, he specifically puts this up of the smoke of incense going up. And we think about even like on, on, you know, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, shielding the mercy seat from human eyes by this cloud of incense in Leviticus 16. That's always a vivid image in my mind when I think about that, or even these other things like that, that here these guys are who are never once are, are said to have been commanded by God to go in there and given these things to do, making a mockery of all this stuff. And it's the priest of God, Ezekiel, who has to kind of, you know, dig his way into the temple, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just like look at the irony in that, right? Yeah. <laughs> these guys who are most likely not priests, worshiping falsely, um, doing the things that a priest should be doing, but they're doing it to idols and false gods. And then the priest who ha- has to kind of, you know, see this all going on. The other detail I think we we should talk about briefly, at least, is this matter of it's happening in the dark. The Lord points that out to Ezekiel, and and they're even saying there in the dark that the Lord doesn't see, the Lord's left. But I think just by the fact that he's giving this vision to Ezekiel, he he proves them to be quite wrong. Right, yeah. I mean, it makes you think of the—what psalm is it where it talks about, you know, um, where are we to escape from God, right? Even Mm. going to Sheol, he's there, right? Or God sees things in secret. He tells us that uh, Adam and Eve tried to hide, you know, after the fall and descent right behind a bush, right? And God saw them, you know, or uh, Jesus even tells us in a comforting way that we pray in secret and our father hears our prayers in secret. So, you know, here's this, they're in this dark room in the temple, but the, what it, he, um, you know, uh, in verse 12, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They think, you know, God is not seeing them. They think God has not, you know, what's, what's God really got to do with this? Um, and that's a common theme as well in terms of idolatry in the Old Testament as well. You know, think about even with the golden calf, one of the most well-known instances, right? When they, what do they call the golden calf? They, they give it the name of Yahweh. This is the God who lets you out of Egypt, right? They're tired of waiting for other things or they're wanting, well, this is the one. So now then, we might as well cover our basis, but, and God doesn't see us. We're doing it in the dark for one, but also two, then um, 
the Lord has forsaken us. Look at us. We're exiles. And now then we got to take things into our own hands and, and let's try something else here too. But God does see. God knows. And God has not forsaken them. Although the way that this ends, they will, um, they'll be regretting those words that they say. But. Into the third abomination, that's verses 14 and 15. Rather, there's not a lot of detail there in the description. We're told that there were women weeping for Tammuz. And again, we're, we're getting closer to the Holy of Holies. What What's here in the third abomination? Sure. Yeah, it's um one of the things that we see that uh, now here then in verses 14 to 15, especially um, what he tells us between the porch and the altar, about 25 men facing the east, worshiping the sun, or excuse me, I jumped ahead there. Verses 14, 15, north gate of the house of the Lord, there sat a woman weep, women weeping for Tammuz and said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? So there's, the darkness is not mentioned here now. So we, is, everything appears to be kind of in, in broad daylight, so to speak. And you have the worship of this Babylonian god Tammuz. And this is one of those ones that I had to look this up as well. My my Babylonian and Mesopotamian <laughs> um, deities are not on the tip of my <laughs> my tongue. That's probably okay. But it's good. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Well, oh, well, I always when kind of a side note. I, growing up, you know, in the uh, when you think of the Ghostbusters movies, right, and Ga- Dagon and all the you know uh, Gozer and all the Canaanite gods. That's how I remember the Canaanite gods. I, I think <laughs> Ghostbusters. But uh, that's how I remember. Just like the Ark of the uh, the Covenant is always Indiana Jones, right? But but there's no you don't, there's no Indiana Jones with with Tammuz. Um, so that's what. <laughs> anywho, <laughs> I don't know if that's sad on my part or. <laughs> but but um, Tammuz, there were some Babylonian kings that had that name, and at some point in history, a cult had arisen that had something to do with the end of spring, the secession of rains, and then the ensuing quote unquote death of nature when the hot arid season came about. Um, so the fourth month of the Mesopotamian calendar was named after Tammuz. Now don't ask me what the other names of the Mesopotamian calendar are. I know that one was named after Tammuz and that's the extent of my Mesopotamian knowledge in terms of that. My, my daughters are in classical conversations and this year they're studying all about like Mesopotamia and the ancient civilization. So it's uh, maybe they could probably tell me more about this than I know. Um, but so there were several forms of some type of lament that were practiced, especially by women. Women were really involved in this right for centuries. And even as late as the 10th century AD, you had the pagan Sabaeans of uh, Haran, which is near the Turkish-Syrian border, observing a mourning ceremony for Tammuz in his month. So even as late as the 10th century AD, you had some of these kind of things with these women wailing and lamenting kind of uh, as a way of, you know, uh, with kind of what was going to be brought about now as they entered into this, this season of things kind of shriveling up and, you know, becoming hot and whatever. So it probably then was imported into Judah directly or indirectly from Mesopotamia. So that's kind of what we know about Tammuz. There's not really any other places that we have specific, you know, mention of this stuff. Um, but that's what are kind of the best guess of scholars and stuff, what's going on here. But especially the two key things of women weeping and then Tammuz, those two two things, that that was a, a Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian and Babylonian false god. Mm-hmm. The final and greatest abomination is in verses 16 through 18, 
And and we're told pretty clearly that they're worshiping the sun toward the east. So we, we know pretty well what's going on. What makes this abomination so great? I think it, it might have something to do with the fact that there are 25 men and, and how they're involved in this sun worship. What's going on in this final abomination? Sure, yeah. These 25 men, um, there were 24 leaders of the divisions of priests with the high priest as the head. So there's kind of this this um you know a jew hearing this would with that image of 25 would 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 think of often the priesthood you know and so here then but this is an apostate priesthood right that we see this they're they're worshiping their their priests who are are not you know godly priest and sun worship is specifically called out by god through moses in deuteronomy chapter 4 and deuteronomy chapter 17 and if you date that kind of when that was around you know Late, like think about around 1400 BC. So now even for all of those years, you know, this idea of worshiping the sun and now then kind of almost then these, this priesthood surrounding this worship and guys who are in charge of this, um, that this is, this is a thorn in the side of God for, for a long time. Um, and Manasseh, you know, good old Manasseh, and again, built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh in second Kings 21. And then, uh, Josiah then, in his reformation, he deposed the priest who made offerings to the sun and other heavenly bodies. That's in Second Kings 23. And he removed the horse that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of Yahweh and burned the chariots of the sun with fires. That's in Second Kings 23. So these 25 men, seeing as like the kind of the, uh, an apostate priesthood, and this idea of worshiping the sons, which is specifically called out by God. And uh, they're oriented towards the east, whereas the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies is oriented towards the west in Exodus 27 and uh, in Numbers chapter 3. So they have their back toward God to worship the sun. So it's kind of like they're, they're turning their back on God. They have their own priesthood. They're doing things that God is specifically time and again told them not to do and uh and they're just you know mocking god in his very place where he dwells you know getting close to the the holiest place that god you know has on this earth as he you know um has designated in the temple um which kind of as a side note too then you know are if you have any knowledge of like church architecture nowadays we'll think about wait a minute, churches traditionally are now are oriented towards the east. Well, we think about then for for Christians then, you know, the, just kind of um, that we oriented our churches towards the east because of the resurrection and return of Jesus when he talks about, you know, the, the son of man coming, you know, and the, the rising sun with that. And we think about burying people, Christians to, facing east to, to meet the Lord in the resurrection, those kind of things. So we're not we, so don't you know come away from this thinking wait a minute my church face is east so that means we're turning our back on god and worshiping the sun no that's different different you know type of thing than here with that but so this abomination with that and then he notices too they're filling it with violence and that's language like in the flood narratives in genesis 6 this whole idea of turning your back on god and those things like that of of violence and then and then the way that this kind of um talks about with this branch um i was looking at what the ESV had, and they had, they, they put the branch to their nose, but there's another way that you could translate it. Um, you could translate it as they put the branch to my nose. 
So in a sense, they're showing contempt for God and his word. And they, you could translate this, they're sticking a branch up God's nose. Hmm. Now let that sink in for a minute. I mean, that's, that's quite something as well, but. Right. I mean, the, the yeah, insult, a, the insult yeah. to God here is, is just off the charts. And particularly for someone like Ezekiel, who is a priest, to see priests engaging in this sort of, you know, abomina- abomination of worship, it would have been quite startling. You can see why this would have been the fourth, the final, the greatest. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, just thinking of priests turning their backs on God, especially in light of, of what the benediction that Aaron was given to put on the people is, you know, that the Lord's face would shine upon them. And, and, and what are they doing? They're actually turning their faces away from God so that if the Lord were to turn his face, they wouldn't even see it. I mean, this is just, it's a mockery of God in, in the highest degree. And the Lord promises a, a very wrathful reaction in verse 18. Pastor Wright, we've got just about two minutes here on the morning. For, for any thoughts on, on that last verse concerning God's reaction, and then as, as you reflect on a text like this, how does a text like this, which is full of, of judgment from the Lord, how does it serve to point us toward our Savior Christ? Sure. Yeah, it's um, so God makes promises to the people. You know, the law has promises to it. Um, do this and you will die, right? And here in verse 18, how God promises, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So God is clear in his judgment against these things. God will not be mocked. God will not, um, you know, tolerate this idea. God, God is a jealous God, punishing the sins of the fathers to the third or fourth generation of those who hate him. And um, so God will hold true to his word. Yet, um, for us, you know, when we hear that in our, in our, that should be a call for each one of us as individual Christians and as the church to take these things seriously of asking ourselves, you know, I mean, anything can become a false God. We don't have to build something even in the temple. Our hearts have a, have a way of creating many gods. So we, we heed those warnings of God, but yet we go as God speaks, then continuing through these verses, through these chapters that God still will show mercy to his people. He will show to the ones who he has called, who was, he has set apart as his own people. He will have pity on them. He will have mercy on them. For us now, as we then hear these words, we fix our eyes on that eschatological temple that Isaiah, not Isaiah, that Ezekiel will you know, point us to at, towards the end of his, his visions here, where we see that we do have a place with God. We have a new Jerusalem. We have a new temple. And we are the, the, the church of God where the son is worshiped, but not the son as a planetary body, but the son who has died for us and risen from the grave and gives us an eternal inheritance beyond compare. And it's in that holy temple to come where we have a place where there is no abomination. There's only glory and glory for us. And that's what we fix our eyes on in the midst of all of this. The one who has redeemed, cleansed, healed, and forgiven us. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pastor Andy Wright is pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Wright, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. You have a great day in the Lord. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.